Welcome to the Real Max Team Podcast. I'm Max Team, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. This is a limited podcast series focused on the entrepreneurial journey of crypto-native hedge fund founders. By crypto-native, I mean hedge funds created with the sole intent of dealing in digital assets. According to PwC, there are currently only around 300 crypto-specific hedge funds globally, versus 30,000 live funds and other asset classes. The total liquid AUM of crypto-native hedge funds is about $4 billion. The median AUM is just shy of $25 million. This tells you how nascent the space still is. I would like this podcast series to be an opportunity for crypto hedge fund founders to share their own story and journey prior to starting their own fund, tell us how their business got started, and how initial success was achieved. I think our audience will also be keen to hear how the current crypto winter is affecting the sector of the blockchain economy, and what the future holds in their opinion. My guest today is Edmund McCormick, co-founder and managing partner of DeChain Capital a multi-strategy fund structured to maximize risk-adjusted returns via long-term growth investments, short-term systematic trading, and active risk management. Edmund is a tech industry veteran with 15 years of executive experience at identifying new market opportunities and launching new businesses at Apple and News Corp. Given his in-depth knowledge of the tech and blockchain markets, Edmund has been featured in top financial publications such as Forbes, US News, Cointelegraph, and American Banker. Edmund is a registered investment advisor representative and graduated from Boston University's Questrom School of Business. This podcast was recorded prior to the revelations surrounding the financial health of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, and its affiliate Alameda Research. I confirmed with Edmund that Dichin Capital was not holding assets on FTX at the time and unraveled. The FTX debacle highlights the risks of custodying digital assets with vastly unregulated participants. The hope is that this will strengthen the industry moving forward, ranging from enhanced customer protections to systemic risk mitigation and sound regulation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My story really starts when I grew up in Bronx, New York, uh, typical blue collar family, wound up going to school up in Boston, uh, which if you're a New York sports fan, I don't acknowledge, I don't reckon, recommend that in the early 2000s when the Red Sox finally won and uh, the Patriots won a couple of Super Bowls. Uh, but then ultimately, you know, after college, uh, at which point, you know, I was studying uh, both business administration and computer science, uh, made my way back to New York and thereafter you know, started a 15-year career uh, in tech, first going over to MySpace, which at the time, this is 2008, was, was the biggest, most traffic site in the U.S. Uh, and it was also really sort of home to some phenomenal leaders who went on to do, you know, some, some great sort of work and leading some great teams, you know, at, at some much bigger tech companies, Adam Bain, John Tremble, et cetera. And uh, from there, you know, made my way over to Apple. They were interested in uh, helping developers monetize the App Store, which in 2010, when I went over there, uh, had just, you know, within the past two, three years been introduced. Uh, so that was really exciting. And, and we went on to, my group went on to ultimately help roll out Apple Music, Apple News. Uh, and then from there, uh, I was sort of at a crossroads. You know, uh, the conclusion of my tenure at Apple was was quite eye opening. Uh, that was the time when you know, Apple really brought to light consumer data and really the, the role that consumer data plays in, in really running the the monetization engines of you know some of the biggest online players out there: Google, Facebook, Meta, whatever you want to call them today, etc. Uh, so I was on the fence, you know, whether I wanted to launch that crypto education platform uh, in 2016 or uh, hold off and, and you know, jump into you know, one more startup, quote unquote, um, where I think I can put you know, my fingerprints on and wound up being a French-based telecom, French-based company that was acquired by a telecom about a year and a half later, um, at which point, you know, I was overseeing both the commercial and business side of the business. Um, 
up until really October uh, of 2021. Uh, at that point, you know, we had just delayed our IPO. We were pre-IPO valuation was around five billion at that point. Uh, it was time to go uh, for me. And at that at that stage, you know, I had already you know, launched my uh, investment advisory firm, uh, Dechained, which was focused in on crypto education. Um, that was running for roughly about a year, and uh, I was ready to pull the trigger on a new project that uh, I had been working on in recent months, which was the the hedge fund. Uh, and so we launched our hedge funds uh, almost a year to the day right now. Uh, so we just passed a 12-month mark, um, at which you know, we've had a, a great year. We're up about 150% uh, since last Congratulations. Month. Oh, thank you. And uh, you know, about 50% year to date. So uh, it was certainly a unique journey. Uh, I don't think many hedge fund managers sort of go through that path of uh, starting in marketing, branching out into you know, other types of positions and business units in, in the tech sector, and then sort of making your way into the, the financial sector. But uh, it certainly helped me in this particular asset class where uh, you need to use a bit of fundamental analysis and, and some of the you know, tricks of the trade when you're valuing businesses in, from the tech side um, in order to make you know, certain investments where information might be unavailable or asymmetrical. Um, so, or, or incomplete altogether. I think it's, it's part of the, the story. I think we're still, everyone is still trying to figure it out along the way. So, so it's interesting because I speak to hedge fund founders who have a more traditional, like literally decade, decade and a half or more cutting their teeth on Wall Street, doing a variety of, of things, honing in investment strategies, trading strategies. What do you think, you know, if anything, predestined you for, for what you're doing? You know, you're saying a tech background, an operational background, a lot of times, for example, People can be very, very good traders or portfolio managers, but not necessarily good operators. Do you feel like you are a good operator? Do you think that your your background helped you on that aspect? I would say yes, in terms of operating the fund. But with that being said, this is certainly not you know a solo project. This fund doesn't come into existence uh, and doesn't run and deliver the results that we've had just with myself. So fortunately, you know, uh, really built the concept and did the real world, real money backtesting for about thirteen months before we launched the fund with our current advisor who comes from traditional quant you know, hedge fund background coming from you know, Janice Henderson, where he's worked underneath Myron Scholes, who won the Nobel Prize. I sat next to Myron at uh, the uh, David Booth uh, $300 million grant ceremony at Chicago Booth. I just joined a month earlier for my, uh, so this was in September 2008. Uh, the world is a very strange place, just for the anecdote. And uh, suddenly we get called into the hall and and I'm surrounded. I mean, I, I go sit in, in one of the front rows. Uh, David Booth is speaking and I, I'm, I, I look to my left and, and there is Myron Scholes, who for most of us quant geeks is, is kind of an idol. So that, that was my little anecdote with Myron. And, and on that point of being an idol, that's main reason why uh, Alan, who's our, our quantitative advisor, has really been hesitant about going full-time because there's someone who, who really loves the, that type of work, is the opportunity to work with someone like that who, who knows how long they're going to be you know, full-time and active in the markets. Uh, something is hard to pass up on. No matter how much I think of myself, uh, I'm certainly not replacing Myron. But, uh, so having someone you know, to help really shape really the foundation of our investment thesis from the very beginning. And then from there, uh, I'm very blessed to have you know, Jonathan Fomery, who is my co-founder, comes from traditional investment banking background. So you know, we have a, a pretty unique mix of you know, traditional Wall Street backgrounds combined with quantitative hedge funds combined with tech. And you know, I would say that well-rounded background has really helped us 
really apply key strengths to, to really capitalize, not just in, in terms of market inefficiencies and, and how to maximize alpha, but also in market conditions like we're facing now, which to be honest, is not, is not new. If you follow the past cycles, we've had much more dramatic market corrections to help preserve capital and, and at the same time, you know, harvest volatility. So uh, I would say, you know, as the, the fund manager, sort of the, the face in many cases of, of D-Chain Capital, it is unique when people hear, you know, I don't come from, you know, Goldman Sachs or uh, name your, name your back. I don't want to be plucking them. Uh, but ultimately, you know, in this case, you know, with, with crypto, the way that we actually uh, built this hedge fund is really as building a tech company first with the specialty in finance, not vice versa. We're not trying to sort of say, well, we're, we have all of this equity, you know, experience in you know, exotic derivatives or you know, fixed income, and we're, we're going to learn crypto as you go along. It's a very hard sector to make that leap into, especially with a lot of the, you know, the variables that you're accustomed to in, in you know, a very well-regulated industry like equities when you go to crypto, which in many cases for many feel like the, the wild west still. Well, I, I commend you uh, for for actually putting this this way around. You know, I personally subscribe to that approach. I think, you know, especially in the world we live in today, it allows you to think about how to build an information process and information architecture. It's building enterprise value for your business, where you're creating intellectual property, not only in the form of your insights, but the infrastructure, the technology that allows you to derive those insights. And it allows you to create uh, a fertile ground for how you iterate through different market cycles. Whereas if you don't invest and think about it as a tech company, you will lose along the way because you would have to reinvent the wheel several times over. So I, I command and I applaud your, your approach. Before we, we, we get into the details of how you actually got started and like literally logistically, you, know, you mentioned sort of a time frame. but before that, were there any uh, failures or setbacks that you faced in, in your career leading into starting this, this business that you think were formative? It doesn't have to be the case, but I always like to understand it's hard to go through, you know, a decade and a half or, or two decades without at some point stumbling or hitting, you know, just a bad market and, and how you grow out of it. Sure. Yeah. And I, I have many, many bumps and bruises learned along the way. I would say, you know, really first job I, I took in tech, uh, MySpace, you know, while it had a lot going for it at the time, there was a lot to be learned about you know, really not being focused in on why your users, why your customers are, are there, really losing touch with really what's the utility and, and the value that you know, you're exchanging on a daily basis and you know, seeing how when you lose your way, how incumbents can just come in and ultimately start to you know, eat away at market share. So that was a really good learning experience. And then uh, again, one that, especially as you're looking at projects today, or even looking at you know, existing Web2 companies, you could start to see a lot of that same DNA being reflected uh, across those projects. Uh, in addition, you know, I had started a company uh, back in 2011. It was called Mobilecrafted, and it's going to sound archaic now, but uh, it was all about you know, looking at the fact that most websites were built really for the desktop experience. I wanted to build something, have a team building up uh, mobile websites in HTML5. It would just be dynamic. It would ultimately fit all the different you know, permutations of, of screen size and operating systems, et cetera. Uh, we got some, some really good momentum, um, but ultimately it was a decision of, do I want to stay at Apple or do I want to go full-time? And that was a great learning experience because, you know, skip ahead 11 years, 10 years later, you know, I was faced with that similar choice. Go full-time, which is required in order to make this really work, or 
do we build something uh, that we just you know, wait and see and hopefully gain enough momentum to hire a team? So those are things that you know you learn when you do, uh, combined with sort of overall sentiment. You know, when we were when we had launched the investment advisory firm, you know, we had quite a few customers who, who were coming on board, and it gave me a sort of front row seat to see what are the real concerns like what's the underlying fear that a lot of people are feeling right now about this space and a lot of those biases and concerns and preconceived notions were exactly the same that i heard from institutional investors who we were pitching a year later to, to invest in our fund so you know things that you would deem as you know a failure and you didn't need to sort of be on a front cover of any you know publication phenomenal learning experiences. I, I think it's very instructive. You said something that I find very insightful, talking about what it takes and the type of commitment that it takes to make the leap, to start a business or join as a co-founder. And, you know, one of the things that I've also seen, and it, you know, in, in our industry, I think it's even more acute because if you think about a move from TradFi into crypto, for example, let's just say this is the, the premise for a new business idea. The opportunity cost for successful TradFi individuals is very high, right? These are hard to come by seats. If you're producing and you're making money, it really has to be sort of an MPV calculation with obviously an incomplete information set that indicates that you will outperform that hurdle that you're currently earning and that it's worth making making that move. What I've come to find out, especially in in, um, in times where capital is easier to come by is that some individuals were sort of like have one foot out, but keep one foot in. In other words, like they're not fully committed. And my experience is in order to succeed in getting anything off the ground, you sort of, you have to go for it. You have to be fully in, fully committed because as dedicated as you are to the mission, you are not going to be able to literally live the ups and downs of that. You know, this starting like, you know, getting rejected, you know, facing some stumbling hurdles along the way just to set up the operation. Uh, it's very hard. So I'm glad you make that point. I share that opinion that, you know, if, if you are, and that's why you better be, I always tell founders that I advise also, you better be, be doing the best due diligence on your business idea because you are going to commit the most capital in the form of opportunity cost. Certainly. And, uh, you know, with this fund, you know, learning it the hard way, my, my co-founder, uh, who is a French citizen, who's here you know, on an H-1B visa, uh, learning the, the ups and downs and pitfalls of U.S. immigration. Took, uh, took over a year for him to finally get uh, the change in the category of his visa, uh, which meant you know I was full time and and he was really working full, two full time jobs you know to to contribute both at the day job and then at the fund. So talk about you know really trying to keep your your eye on the prize and, and, and stay motivated. That fire in your belly, that that hunger and also need to to outperform it every day, get out there and, and make it happen. So so you have a co-founder, you said you have a good team. Like what was the the inception of that relationship? How did you guys meet and how did the idea come about? Was it your idea and you were looking for a co-founder? Do you guys know each other before and sort of decided you wanted to do this? What was the genesis of this? Yeah, it started between myself and our, our current quant advisor, Alan. Uh, I've known him you know, for 20 years going you know back to college. And he was someone who was always not only interested in crypto, but also one of the most technical, one of the smartest people I've ever met. You know, he's someone who's credited on a, a patent assigned to MIT right now. So he's just very, very good uh, in, in a number of different areas related to sort of this sector and some of the sectors that we want to focus in on. And one of the questions that you know, I had asked him is, 
once it became apparent and once we got enough inquiries, you know, whether we would ever uh, manage the, the funds of the consumers that were paying for our D-Chain service, which is how this all started, uh, I asked you, what is something that you see that you do on a daily basis that really we're not seeing right now in, in the current crypto market? And something that sort of kind of came off the page to us was the fact that every you know four years, there's a cycle. The first two years, people are high-fiving. You sort of have, in many cases, people walk around with this slot machine mentality where it's a little bit more gambling. Uh, people just feeling good, everything's going up. And then even from an institutional standpoint, it's sort of like jumping out of an airplane you know, without a parachute. It's a great ride on the way down. And then the last half of that splatter. And then you know, 86% drawdown you know, in Bitcoin or 90% in Ethereum. And then it seems like everything starts over again. Um, many of the big funds that we were looking at out did phenomenal in, in bull markets. And then ultimately, when you, you sort of peeled it back and you looked at, well, how exposed was it to you know, volatility? Did it even outperform you know, the base assets, Ethereum and, and Bitcoin you know, at the beginning of this bull run, which was not the case? It became apparent that you know, there's a lot of work that, be, that could be done around adding in the right type of you know, active hedging, which you know, is not new in equities, but ultimately would require that we take you know, some of those you know, established principles, but ultimately tailor it to this specific market. And that's where, you know, back in October 2020, we got to work. We took about $180,000, uh, put that into you know, an active portfolio, did all of the, the tracking and, and reporting out on it. And at the same time, trial and error, built out the systems, figured out, okay, here are data points that can be you know, structured in a way where uh, we could use it for a specific type of factor-based investing decision. and we started to see, you know, month over month, it started to do better and better. And we certainly factored in things that you know, we didn't expect, like you know, there, there wasn't you know, the, the scale of liquidations, for example, and leverage you know, in, in prior cycles. Uh, we certainly saw in May of 2021 and May of 2022 uh, what happens when that over-leveraged money comes to crumble. Uh, but ultimately, doing that backtesting put us on a, a really good path of, okay, we want to launch this in the fall. At that point, you know, it became apparent now I wanted to stay with uh, uh, with his current day job. Good decision on his part, uh, but ultimately, I was then you know on search for you know, the right co-founder uh, and the right partner to, to launch this with. And uh, very few things, very few positive things come out of lawyers, but uh, one of which was an introduction to uh, to Jonathan, uh, who was uh, is, you know certainly a, a unique. Uh, person, unique background, you know, started originally in his career as a professional soccer player in France before coming over to the U.S. and uh, you know, studying at Brown and, and going to, to school, working on Wall Street, um, and ultimately figured out it was a great fit. Uh, and, and from there, the rest was the story. That's a great story. So initially, there's, there's real hard work in bringing science to the matter, and it's you and Alan and coming up with some initial thesis. And it sounds to me that you actually took the time as much as one can when there is also the draw of you know, potentially putting money to work or finding an investor to do so. But you did take the time to really hone that in. And from that point on, found someone that you felt could be along for the ride. What did you see in your co-founder that was non-overlapping and complementary with, with your own sort of mode of operation, the skills that that, that you bring to the table. I'll give you an example. One of the things I always do if I'm contemplating partnering with someone either on a 
you know, more than just a trade, like maybe there's a, an, an arrangement, maybe there is a business to consider. Uh, I will actually go through the, the, the work of doing that sort of listing like strengths, weaknesses, and understanding the cycle metrics, because these things I think are overlooked, but then matter over, over time. And, you know, you could be very scientific about it. Uh, you could be intuitive about it, but was there such a, um, a conclusion in your mind that this was someone who was the right fit alongside your position? Yeah, it, it was a bit of experience, personality of, of just drive uh, that really kind of checked all of the boxes for me. Uh, had the, the right experience, came from the traditional investment banking background, which you know, was something that was important for me because you know, the initial question you asked uh, was, you know, how is sort of my path you know, to, to managing a fund? not coming from traditional Wall Street. So, you know, having him come on board and, and provide sort of uh, that experience and, and many of the, you know, the lessons and best practices from that world combined with, you know, the personality. He's, he's one of the more positive people. I, I'm, uh, I'm certainly more of a skeptic and cynic, and, and I think you can tell I spend a lot of time with developers uh, and you know, in, in the blockchain world where everything, I'm cynical on everything. Uh, and he's, you know, one of those people who's very outgoing and, you know, relocated down to Miami to be closer to the community, uh, which for me was a little bit difficult. I have a, a family and it's a little difficult to uproot them. And then really the, the overall hunger I drive. I mean, he's, I wake up early and then many times, you know, he beats me and there's no reason, <laughs> you know, based on what he does. It's, That's it's, the it's kind of stuff. partner you want. Absolutely. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, he's, <clears throat> it, it really was a, it was a fortuitous sort of situation where, we got introduced together and, and, and started working in him. It was a great click. And, and you said he's a, he's a, he used to be a high performance athlete. So I think there's just there's some qualities that come with that that are undeniable. I'm a big fan of sports and the process that it takes at the individual uh, contribution level as well as team to make it happen. And usually that transcends into business. I mean, there are a lot of similarities. I do believe that business is a lot like sports. So it sounds like you found a, a great uh, partner for this. How do you guys split the roles? I mean, you're obviously you're on the ma money management side of things. What is this core focus? Yeah. So he oversees uh, a lot of the operations, uh, investor relations. Uh, we, we often will split uh, compliance. Uh, the reason being is that we want to have sort of two sets of eyeballs on everything uh, to avoid a scenario where you're sort of misinterpreting. Uh, and, and also at the same time, he's also uh, managing and, and sort of uh, overseeing our relationship. We have several different advisors that, that we turn to on a number of different matters, uh, whether it's you know, quantitative, whether it's legal and, and regulatory or even tech. So ultimately managing you know, those relationships and, and ensuring that you know, we're, we're covering all of our bases. So I, he frees me up to then do the, uh, the investment side. Truly uh, not overlapping. That's great. So in terms of the specifics, so you've got your back desk, you find your partner, and then what? Where did you find the capital to get started? I mean, so I'm, I'm familiar with the economics of a hedge fund. It's certainly not free. It's not cheap. There are a number of line items on the PL. We sort of know what they are. It's usually like there's human capital, obviously. There's data. Uh, there's some legal and compliance expenses. Uh, whether you're under uh, thresholds or not, you sort of have to operate in a way that you ensure uh, fiduciary constraints and, and duties to your investors. So, so you've got those line items. Those are ongoing costs. So you need, you need operating capital or you need people to be willing to take you know, a, a view that at some point it's going to kick in. And then there's what you, you make a living out of, which is producing returns on capital. So you need assets under management. What capital did you start with and where did you find it? Yeah. So uh, initial startup costs and capital was, was self-funded. So 
uh, along the way, I was, I was very fortunate to either uh, be a recipient of stock options at a, at a preferable price, especially in the 2010 with Apple, and then uh, an acquisition uh, at the company that I joined thereafter. So I, I had a little bit of a runway uh, and a little bit of capital saved. Uh, incredibly important, especially if you're deciding to go on your own and, and go full time in any startup, is to make sure that uh, you'll be able to cover your expenses and, and do so for you know however long your Nessa burn rate is. And then prior to Jonathan joining, you know, we did a lot of the the back work. You know, we had already started uh, from a, a legal uh, setup standpoint. You know, we had produced you know, our, our PPM. We started building out all the, the legal entities, necessary filings. You know, with the regulatory groups. So when when Jonathan joined, you know, it was a scenario of we've done a lot of the legwork uh, to to get it to this point. Now we need to now start to bring in new capital. Uh, we were myself and Jonathan were the first investors in the fund, which I think you know, should happen in many hedge funds. You should sort of take your own medicine. Um, but but ultimately, which is a given, but we've I've found out in recent months that that's not the case. Uh, and, and Jonathan was has been crucial in in helping to fundraise. Uh, it's fundraising. Uh, I think many people don't realize, especially if you're an emerging fund is incredibly time and resource intensive activity. Uh, so to, and when we launched, you know, we launched on November 1st, uh, 2021, uh, that was the peak of the crypto market followed by, you know, three weeks later where there were signals that, oh, this inflation thing is not so transitory after all from Jerome Powell. And uh, we then went into sort of the, the market condition that we're in now. So. Having the ability uh, and freedom to focus in on the markets, to do the things that you know we need to do to to ensure that we're identifying you know, undervalued opportunities, and a lot of that is a lot of grunt work you know, in the developer community, which uh, I enjoy doing. Most people don't. Uh, and then Jonathan really going out, networking, helping onboard right type of broker dealers to assist you know in, in the financing and, and funding rounds. So. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a team effort, um, but it was certainly one filled with quite a bit of challenge. So did you raise both AUM and working capital or were you able to get enough AUM from the get-go in, in the form of seed to generate management fees to sustain some of your operating expenses? Yeah, so uh, the prior to the, the launch of the fund, completely self-funded, uh, within the first... You know, 90 days, we, we had raised enough AUM to be self-sustaining. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's, that's no small feat. So congratulations on that. It's very hard to raise money, no matter what people say. They talk about the wall of money, uh, cash on the sidelines, most widely used sentence I've heard in meetings. Getting checks to be written is, is hard. Can you share just at a high level, like what types of investors were the first commitments uh, that allowed you to you know, make this uh, somewhat self-sustainable? What were their profiles? Yeah. So we started with some high net worth individuals, uh, many of whom you know, outside of our network that we were introduced to through other uh, through other investors that were already in the fund. Over time, you know, we then started to gain some momentum with family offices uh, and, and smaller institutional. And now we're we're having some conversations. Interestingly enough, now that we have you know a year under our belt, uh, with some new some new type of larger, let's say, mid sized institutional investors. Uh, all the way through endowments. Yeah. I mean, there are pockets of uh, thought leaders in, in the allocator space. And I, I find that the key 
is, is to find support at the CIO level, even though maybe the expert is, let's say, a director level working within their organization, but CIOs who are supportive of initiatives where you know, they're willing to get creative or spend a little bit of political capital to, to get something done, at least to have uh, a little bit uh, a skin in the game. What is, would you say, in general, what are the main objections and obstacles to your raising? Like, what does a no look like? For Edmund, you know, on any given day when you when you fundraise. Yeah, I mean, for one, you're fighting right now the the market. Uh, when interest rates go up, uh, you generally see an inverse response with with growth investments. Uh, ultimately, you have to discount you know future cash flow. So uh, there's the risk off complacency mentality that that starts to seep in in many cases, and people want to just wait for the market to to sort of improve. That's the baseline. Then you start to you know fight general by existing biases preconceived notions about crypto uh the idea you know if it's too risky this is too much counterparty risk it's not regulated you'll a through z i mean you've heard them all Uh, and ultimately just acknowledging and a lot of those biases are are completely valid you know it's not the first time we've heard it but ultimately helping them to understand that what we're seeing now is very similar to what the investing world look like in the early 2000s. And and not just from a retail standpoint, just looking at what regulatory groups, domestic and international, were were putting out. I mean, the IMF put out uh, their POV in uh, in 2002 called the uh, challenges of the e-banking revolution, because there was fear that the ability to access banking services globally will ultimately lead to a rise in uh, money laundering and to avoidance of U.S. regulation. I mean, this is not the first sort of rodeo here. And, and helping them understand that blockchain follows sort of a long line of precedent for new technology and, and ultimately new concerns that arise. Uh, and then the third is is ultimately, you know, any new fund manager uh, wanting to see, you know, a, a sustained track record and see consistency, which uh, you know, we're, we're very happy to continue to to, to put up. You know, yeah, that's the typical terms. chicken and egg uh, a problem, which, you know, at times, uh, you know, regardless of, of one's experience is, is somewhat hard to overcome. In some cases, it's literally mandated, you know, the, the three-year track record rule that just suddenly opens up doors with a different class of allocators that literally by charter cannot look at anything underneath that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the, the, the bigger problems. And that's why it takes the hustle. It takes also having relationships and I, I do believe that at the inception of any business, it's going to boil down to an Edmund sitting across the table from someone and, and, you know, them looking in your eyes, looking at the set of information that they have, your transparency, your honesty, the, the projection of reliability as a business partner saying, all right, there are risks involved, but you know what? I believe in the thesis. I'm going to take a bet on this person. I, I, I think at, in the early days, you can't underestimate uh, the personal reliable sort of business partnership angle, you know, then later down the road, it, it becomes more of a, it's a process, right? It's like, there's portfolio allocation that needs to go somewhere. Do you have the right profile? You've got enough history that proves it. There's definitely an element of like, oh, we like these guys versus these guys. But um, at your stage, I think it's credit to you and your partner's ability to convince people to get behind this and continue to do that. Absolutely. And, oh, and just to add to that, I mean, you're spot on in, in terms of customer service is, is critical for a fund of our size. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, for us, you know, doing things that might be out of the ordinary in, in traditional hedge funds, we do monthly investor briefs and, and walk through sort of where you know, our gains came from, start to look at, you know, adjustments in strategy, 
and ultimately, you know, providing levels of you know transparency at the daily level, uh, which certainly is not cheap in order to to build out. But uh, we think you know, with this new sort of asset class, for us to invest in, in new ways of providing that level of transparency is, is critical. Absolutely, and and that's the reason why you know I saw it even in. Uh, my own sort of tech startup upbringing, my, my very first startup, you know, we want deals and continue to keep customers happy. I mean, it's obviously not scalable, but, you know, you could do it for a while. It's just if you do prov- uh, like provide superior customer service and the attention to detail and people feel like they're getting white glove, red carpet service. And I think you could do this for a while. And you know, as you scale beyond a certain point, it becomes harder. But it definitely is a reason why certain investors or certain customers want to work with emerging companies in general. So as we look at your approach, so you were back testing, so we're going to talk a little bit about how the initial success was achieved. Clearly, you've got something here. And the goal here, as I've stated in our prior conversations, and I say it you know, openly here on, on tape, is not to pry for proprietary details. Obviously, you've got some secret sauce. So I just want to make it clear, none of my questions are, are intended to indirectly obtain any trade secrets. It's more about Try to understand the investment philosophy if it's if you feel like it's differentiated versus uh, other folks in the space, other asset classes, other approach uh, approaches. And fundamentally, like at a economics 101 level, what risks do you believe you're getting compensated for? I would say exposure risk, certainly. Uh, I would say market risk. Uh, and, and there's ways that we, we do that. Everything from you know constraints that are placed at the portfolio construction level limits on you know your specific security and sector uh ultimately how you are uh how we in- institute multi-time frame forms of of risk protection ranging from you know portfolio level all the way down to uh even identifying you know what's not just the most effective but what's going to be most cost efficient so now you're looking also at you know expense risk uh which is what the lps are going to feel you know on a monthly basis so that's really important to us so uh, for us to be able to really minimize uh, those those three, of course, you know there are other elements uh, and other risks that you can include as well, go into regulatory or you know, security risk, uh, which we take you know, certainly a lot of time and effort to to check off. Um, but I would say those three. Understood. Understood. And what is the overall investment philosophy? You know, what are you trying to deliver? Um, you know, it sounds to me like based on the numbers you've outlined, you're obviously either earning a form of return and getting your capital compensated or being deployed against some opportunities, or you have a, an uncanny ability to, to time the market or both. I mean, which one is it? Is it both? Is it, and I'm keeping it very high level, but just for, for the audience, what do you think your, your approach is and how would you describe it when you're selling it to investors? Yeah. And, and there are metrics that we use, uh, modern portfolio theory, uh, in order to, to measure, you know, whether we're lucky or we're actually being consistent with you know our investment thesis and it's working. Uh, looking at you know our alpha compared to Bitcoin, uh, starting to get evaluate our standard deviation, etc. Um, you know maintaining you know a, a above average sharp. So those are things that we look at to make sure that you know we are obtaining uh, excess return for the risk of the asset class that we're investing in. Uh, but ultimately, you know, for us, you know, as we look forward here, you know, one of the things that we're going to want to make sure that. Uh, we continue to lean into is <clears throat> as this market evolves and as ultimately you know, new factors come on come online that we are instituting the, those data points. We're instituting uh, the way that we identify risk, that we monitor risk, hedge against it uh, to be consistent moving forward. Because for us, it's about 
consistency in, in this type of market, making sure that you know, our goal is to be able to deliver you know, that 5 to 10% month over month, which is incredibly difficult uh, in, you know, in advance of you know, the next start of a, a bull market where we'll then have you know, that capital grown and ultimately we're able to then you know, put that into the market. Absolutely. No, that makes that makes total sense. I think, you know, in, in the run up and also in some of the, I would say, pretty adventurous innovations in the space, some of them, you know, you referred to, uh, to Myron Scholes earlier. I mean, there are things that we, at least in, in Trat5, have studied or seen with our own eyes, uh, being in markets, talking to colleagues, you know, experiencing different market regimes and, and risk management, overlooking uh, potential risks. Like, you know, when we go back, it, it's easy to already forget. I mean, it's, it's no longer in the headlines. We look at the Luna episode where you were seeing yields of 20 or close to 20% unlevered being offered to uh, investors, both retail and institutional. And, you know, I, I know folks who were uh, well-heeled finance professionals who got trapped in, into that trade. And it goes to show again, my, back to my question is, you know, knowing and being able to explain to your investors, what is the actual risk we're getting compensated for? You know, there are valid strategies around hedging that risk potentially and, and preparing for the worst, but at least being able to articulate and, and decompose that because obviously the 20% wasn't a free lunch. Uh, you were obviously getting a, uh, a yield for a reason. And one can argue it probably wasn't enough to compensate the risk of investors at the end of the day. So was it properly priced? Uh, and that's, that's in credit, that's in DeFi. Uh, you know, there are other strategies, there are arbitrage strategies that you know, compensate investors for providing liquidity in certain conditions, uh, subject again to the, what I refer to as a liquidity tail, which is, can you actually execute? Or if you do have a portfolio, as we saw with three arrows and, and the liquidations that occurred this year, can you actually get out of risk without significantly moving the market? Or will there actually be someone to take you out of that risk? All of these things are obviously you know, very important. And so it's good that you, know, you could talk to investors about exactly what it is that you're getting paid for. How do you address a situation where things don't go according to the plan, I think is also important because inevitably it's a probabilistic process. So there is uh, a part of that distribution that's going to go against you. Uh, and, and so being able to talk through that is, uh, is important. Uh, any thoughts on capacity constraints uh, across your sources of return? That's a great question. Uh, and it ties into uh, actually a point that you just made, which is, you know, one of the challenges in the market that, we're, that we've seen this year is that when you look at liquidity, it is so concentrated in a few assets, really in the top 10 market cap in crypto which ultimately then raises the question of, you know, if you hold or if you're too concentrated in a specific position outside of that, who are you going to sell to where you're then not going to really act against yourself uh, and, and really start to really go in and, and significantly, you know, draw down the value of your portfolio. Um, and for us, you know, fund size, because, you know, we are small and this is a case where, you know, crypto, at least for now, still allows an edge for the smaller players versus you know the, the billion dollar plus uh just for those purposes of having that nimbleness to move in and out of positions to take on you know position of relative size for the portfolio um but for us you know the the figure that we look at is really that 50 to 75 million dollar range um, where the investment thesis that we have today and the specific growth investments that we like to focus in on uh in the, specifically in the sectors that we focus in on, uh, that's really sort of that Goldilocks. It allow us to get to maintain you know, the, the strategy that we have today, but also provide uh, more capital and more uh, sort of free flow cash to then 
scale out our team. And it's good that you have a good handle on this. Um, I view it as a, you know, look, in, in comparison with TradFi, obviously smaller scale, uh, but smaller strategies, higher returns. Uh-huh. And so it's an exclusive opportunity for investors to get in on something that is very precious, right? Um, and so, you know, let's say someone came in with a portion of that AUM, what they'd be entitled to or entitled, what they could expect from that position over time, what you'd be aiming to deliver to them is something that it's very special and where you're earning a premium for your ability to navigate and be nimble. So I think it's, look, it's interesting as part of, let's say a family office portfolio, this can be very appealing because, you know, as part of your deployment strategy, you might have some capital that you'd like to deploy towards lesser known approaches, exclusive deals, which it sounds like, you know, yours is where through the expertise of the portfolio managers, you're you know going to aim to, to earn an outsized return. And then from your perspective, presumably, you know, I was going to ask, like, do you have ongoing R&D to say, okay, we've got a set of approaches now where we sort of know what the capacity is. Do you think there's another, you know, call it another hundred million dollars here and a hundred million dollars there of different strategies that, that you're already working on or thinking about based on your knowledge today? Uh, short answer is yes. Uh, there was something that, uh we were discussing my, my partner Jonathan and I yesterday uh, that is starting to surface and uh, I think it'll be a big narrative for over the next 18 to 36 months. Uh, but again, right now, you know, we're certainly focused on, on the current fund and uh, we'll continue being focused on the current fund, but we think that there's uh, a strategy that lives outside of the current thesis that we have today that could make a very interesting opportunity. Great. I'm glad to hear. And I look forward to hearing more when uh, when you guys are ready to, to talk a little bit more about this. I want to talk about the, the crypto winter a little bit. You know, again, one of the most overused terms in the last few months. You know, obviously every period is different. My first question is, as you were heading into it, were, were your approaches and signals sort of telling you something was off? Were you caught by surprise, but then had robust risk management and approaches that allowed you to navigate? Or did you actually see it as this is a great opportunity and we're going to step in and, and make money. Like what was like, what happened during 2022 and, and how did you navigate that? Yeah. So you now with the caveat that, you know, historical performance doesn't dictate, you know, future, uh, we have to learn from history and, and historically, you know, in the last you know, 13 years, going back to 2009 for Bitcoin, it's cyclical. Uh, Ethereum came in in 2015 and, and since then, this is their second cycle. Uh, and the reality is that when you're looking at you know that four-year period, which is usually anchored around the uh, new issuance reduction for Bitcoin, uh, usually in the last 12, 18 months, uh, you, you generally see a pretty hard market pullback. And we saw it with Bitcoin, where first it was roughly about 90%, then it dropped down to the low 80s, and, and this go around to roughly about 76% correction from peak to trough. Uh, it was expected. We're going to start to see some type of you know, significant material uh, pullback here, correction. And that's where, you know, when we're looking in 2021, we assumed, okay, we're, we're probably approaching the, the peak here. Now is a good time to introduce this, you know, this thesis that has such an emphasis on you know, volatility and, and minimizing risk. Uh, funny enough, when we took it out to market, we roadshowed it. Uh, this is the spring of 2021. I would say 75% of the meetings were People who said, well, investing in Ethereum and Bitcoin is, is our strategy. We're, we're just going to stick with that. Uh, there are short-term holders. Now, I'm fine with that. If you want to buy it and, and set and forget it for 10 years, hard to argue that it doesn't work. Uh, but these are people who, you know, their, their horizons were much shorter. You know, 
short to midterm. Uh, so it was hard to get them to buy into this idea of adding risk protection. It's, but there's a component of the investment thesis that you are going to have a bleed. You have to pay a premium for these, these hedges. Uh, there's really no cutting corners there. Uh, but ultimately, we would then make up and then some you know, through short-term just amount of trading and, and obviously the upside on growth. Um, now, you know, for us, you know, when we're looking at this, this current winter, we certainly did not expect uh, or, or it would be difficult to foreshadow the, you know, these interest rate hikes and, and sort of the economic climate that we're in. Um, but that's the, the benefit of being a smaller fund. You know, we have that ability to be a bit agile and, and adjust our strategy you know, within the parameters as needed. Versus, I, I equate this to you know my time at tech companies. You know, if you wanted to make a change at Apple, it would be like trying to turn an oil tanker. It's just it's gonna take forever if if you could. Uh, so it was both a challenge and an opportunity for us. And from an opportunity standpoint, it really allowed us to differentiate. That's great. That's great to hear. And and of course, you know the unfortunate part, as we've talked about, is and it's in the data that uh, allocation to the asset class does tend to follow the price action of the main indices. Uh, and it's just incentives and political capital and, and human nature. But those who will back this now will stand a chance to really be on board with a success story, which it sounds like you're building uh, and continue to, to to hone in on. I want to just ask one last question about the, the crypto winter. Do you feel like from a an execution and microstructure standpoint, things have changed somewhat? I mean, there have been talks about whether official or unofficial talks of you know significant headcount reductions in some of the big trading players and balance sheets in the space, and whether it's affording other players credit uh, facilities and trading capital to take advantage of opportunities to provide liquidity, or it's plainly desks that are being curtailed. Um, and we've seen this movie play out in TradFi and Wall Street through several episodes of market downturns, which crypto is, is going through right now. Have you seen any changes in your ability to execute, to, to move capital around transaction costs at the end of the day? Like what, what has been the impact, if any? Yeah, I would say that the biggest was access to derivative markets. You know, when we started uh, and kicked the... You know, the tires on launching this fund in, in early 2021, uh, you had to really use Deribit or nothing. Uh, and in order to be on Deribit, you needed you know, some type of international domicile. Uh, I personally you know, had conversations to figure out you know, whether it made sense for Virgin Island, came in, even got on the phone with uh, someone in Ireland and, and really decided at that point, you know, we're going to institute a number of risk protections that are not going to require us to, to go down that path. We'll do it domestically. Uh, and fortunately, you know, by the time we wound up launching the funds uh, later that year, there were sort of this flood of, of markets that were all decentralized and, and really gave us access to maybe not the volume that you might get on Deribit, but a lot of options that, um, no pun intended, uh, that we can then use for, for our multi time frame hedge and risk protection. I'm looking at you know, Hedgic all the way to um, Dopex all the way through. And there's, there's many understood, understood. So you do play in, uh, in in sort of decentralized option vault space as well as part of your approach. If it's a tool that can help us generate alpha, we'll certainly explore it. As we come close to wrapping this up today, I want to hear your thoughts on Number one, what do you feel personally and, and within the context of this business, which you know your destiny at this point in time is uh, you both intimately tied, what do you feel you have not accomplished yet? We measure success internally for the fund 
in terms of growth, in terms of headcount, uh, this year was really our, our first year of proving out results and, and building up AUM. Uh, I've, over the next 12 months, uh, I'd like to see us grow our headcount by several multiples, uh, including we're having presence uh, in Southeast Asia with Hong Kong now starting to warm up to, to crypto, which is a huge narrative. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, we certainly would like to start bringing on more institutional dollars. We love and are appreciative to all of the LPs that we have, and, and they certainly took a leap of faith with us. Uh, but we'd like to see you know, more institutional interest and in, in, uh, more institutional funding uh, as time goes on. Understood. That's a, that's a fair objective. And by the way, um, how do you currently deal with the 24-7 nature of, of the business? Is this something that you know, you sort of split responsibilities and, and tours of duty, or are you sort of taking a an approach where you'll identify some main peak hours of trading and activity or focus on other hours in the trading session? Like, what is your approach to the 24-7 dilemma in crypto? Yeah, at some point you got to sleep. Uh, so we have systems that uh, monitor and, and we have the optimization uh, algorithms in place to uh, to optimize assets based on the overall risk-adjusted profile of our portfolio at the market. So in instances of you know, the crash, a lot of that was happening in the middle of the night here. Uh, a lot of that, you know, for us, you know, our, our engine, our trading engine uh, had already started to move us into stable coins uh, to weather the storm because our systems, you know, generally will decision based on uh, historical performance on similar market conditions. There are very few the sample size was, was somewhat small in that instance, so it will default to go to something, you know, relatively low risk. Um, but saying that, it does require long hours. It's, you know, it's a, you know, in many cases, a four thirty a.m. to eleven p.m. gig, uh, and then you know, it's something that you know, if you want to start any business, whether it's a hedge fund or fruit stand, you got to put it in the elbow grease, you got to put it in the hours. So, so cutting corners there. Absolutely. And then the way I look at it as well is despite the fact that, let's say, equity markets or credit markets are closed overnight here, let's say in the U.S., you're a U.S.-based trader and you trade equities, the markets are closed, prices are still moving. They might not be traded, but valuations are getting updated, uh, sentiment being digested. There are other markets that can express those views, uh, there are derivatives. But the reality is in the way you manage your risk, you have to account for uh, certainly, and in, in, again, asset classes where there is an overnight risk, and that's that's one of the risks that you know you need to take into account. In other words, like you may wake up the next morning, there's a big move overnight, and uh, markets have repriced, and so making sure that that gap risk or that overnight risk, and that's even more potent when you have non-linear exposures in your portfolio. Let's say options, when you think about slide risk, pin risk as you get closer to expirations, and and how your overall sort of first, second, third order derivative risk evolves. Um, so I think if, if you approach it in that way and, and consider that ultimately prices are bound to be reflected at all times of the day, you'll have a sound you know, risk management framework. From the asset classes perspective, what do you think is in the horizon? You've talked to me about what you feel you haven't accomplished. So that's the fund, that's yourself. You have some very clear business objectives, obviously tied to growing your business. What do you think of the asset class and what, what, what are you most excited about where you think this is, I want to continue being in this game and I think it's going to be big. A lot of talk around regulation uh, and the impact that regulation will have. Um, the fact that we're even having this conversation is, you know, for someone that came in in late 2011 is still a bit surreal because at that point when you were investing in 2011 uh, and there was no Coinbase, you had to go to a drugstore to the Western Union, wire money overseas to then get credited on Mt. Gox. 
uh, it, was, it was the dark ages and, and people assumed that you were doing something nefarious online. Uh, so the idea that you know, the, the White House put, you know, put forward executive framework for digital assets is incredible. Uh, and I think you know, in the coming years, because you know, regulation moves at a glacial pace, we'll start to see layer by layer regulation starting to come in where hopefully it doesn't stifle innovation, but ultimately will you know, help lead to the inclusion of this asset class into the, the financial sector. So you know, I would, I'm very excited for what's to come you know, around stable coins and, and really standardizing that. If anything, the standardizing what could be deemed as collateral in the auditing process, uh, the markets, you look at the fact that you know, what percentage of all derivative trading comes out of the US and equity world, and then compare that to crypto. Less than one percent. Absolutely, uh, it's upside down, so and this is bound it, to bound to change. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of upside there, um, and, and certainly, you know, hopefully, this fiasco between the SEC and, and Ripple will, will spur you know, greater classification on, on sort of all of these assets and, and make everything a little bit more clear, even from a taxation standpoint. So I'm excited there. Uh, you know, regulation really is is a I mean, is a welcome is sort of a welcome change uh, in crypto if you've been here long enough uh, because institutions more mainstream adoption is not going to happen when there's you know perceived counterparty risk large counterparty risk on the other side uh, so i'm excited for you know, what regulation will do i'm also excited for you know internationally uh just within the last month uh, the, the security and futures commission which is the sec's equivalent in hong kong uh coming out and, and you know really openly being a lot more warm and, and Introducing a bill that could potentially make crypto uh, available to you know, at the retail level, which, when you look at you know the role of Hong Kong, it's always been sort of that uh, controlled port, controlled openness uh, to the Western world for China, and and having China come back um, to crypto, where, which it left in, in September of 2021, I think is going to be a massive boom. So I don't want to get ahead of myself there, uh, but that's a lot of investors, it's a lot of money. Uh, so I think there's a lot of really exciting things in the horizon. Well, thank you for this. I think uh, if I summarized, you're, you're very keen on seeing institutional adoption evolved and you see a, a big prerequisite for this being a, a robust regulatory framework. And I want to quote Churchill here says that America uh, takes its time, but uh, it, it usually gets it right in the end. And, and I, I foresee that the U.S. eventually will set some standards that will then be emulated and build confidence around the world. I know there are some jurisdictions, you name Singapore, for example, that are definitely at the forefront. But I think the asset class, and I don't even want to label it an asset class. I think it's it's more of a paradigm shift as to how finance is going to be conducted and you know, on a going forward basis, I think will require uh, a new set of rules and a fresh look at how things are, are being implemented. I certainly share your opinion. I share it even on the DeFi side. I think when you're seeing you know, MetaMask partnering with Sardine and just the fiat on-ramp interfacing uh, at the wallet level, so keeping sort of self-custody features, but ensuring that money makes it into the system in a way that's somewhat controlled and you know much more overseen as a whole it's the price to pay for more consumer protection and ultimately more confidence so if at the same time we see a positive evolution on the usability the use cases and to me one of the big promises of of DeFi certainly is the democratization and globalization of dollarized financial services around the world you're seeing in latin america starting to emerge you're seeing it in africa and i think that's a wonderful promise because 
because we take for granted what we have here. And this really holds the keys to massive worldwide adoption and actually solving real problems. Couldn't agree more. I'll say, you know, you said Churchill, I'll say Thatcher, where there is no alternative. I would concur. Edmund, it's been a real pleasure chatting today. I can't thank you enough for spending the time and, and just telling us your story. I think it was very insightful. I certainly learned a lot. I'm wishing you all the best, you know, in the in the next year. It sounds to me like you've got a great track record. I see no reason why you can't continue building on that. And, uh, you know, look forward to keeping in touch and seeing you succeed. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Maxie. Of course. Take care. This podcast is produced by Radio Venture Management, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. This podcast is not an offer to sell or an invitation for an offer to acquire shares or interests in any entity comprising the funds mentioned in the podcast, nor is it an invitation to apply to participate in any entity comprising the funds. This podcast is not an offering or placement of shares or interest in any entity comprising the funds in any jurisdiction and should not be construed as such. No information in this podcast will form the basis of any contract. Any future decision by a recipient or other person to apply to participate in the funds will be based solely on the final offering and constitutional documents of the applicable fund entity, once available and not on this podcast. This podcast is intended only for informational purposes and convenient reference and is not intended to be comprehensive. Certain information contained in this podcast may constitute forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results, or the actual performance of the funds, or underlying investments may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking statements. The information in this podcast has not been audited or independently verified. Neither RVM nor any of its officers, employees, members, related parties, and affiliates, as applicable, makes any representation or gives any warranty in each case expressed or implied as to the fairness, accuracy, reasonableness, completeness, or correctness of this podcast or its contents. Accordingly, no reliance whatsoever should be placed on this podcast or its contents.